Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. We're going to carry on with our study in Philippians. It's titled EG, which means by example. And Paul is setting out the example of the Christian life that he wants the Philippians to live. And after setting out the example of how Jesus gave up his position with all its power and glory to become a servant, Paul says his humility and obedience is the example we should follow. Now today we're going to be looking at chapter 3, the whole of it. So if you've got your dinner on you might want to turn the gas down a bit because this is going to take us a little while so we're going to start at verse one whatever happens my dear brothers and sisters rejoice in the lord i never get tired of telling you these things and i do it to safeguard your faith paul is saying rejoice in whatever circumstances you find yourself it's a call to remember who is in control Who has your back when the going gets tough? To rejoice is a choice. It's an act of faith. To rejoice is to worship God in the circumstances, not for the circumstances. Worship leads to joy, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it gives us that strength to overcome the circumstances we encounter. Rejoicing in the Lord focuses on God and not our problems. I heard a story of a pastor. He was a worship pastor. And he was invited to visit other churches to help them develop their worship. And so he would go off on tours around the various churches. And then one evening whilst he was away, he receives a phone call that will change his life forever. His wife and child had been killed in a road accident. He returns back home full of grief to arrange a funeral. And months after the funeral, he's not worshipped. He's not led worshipped. He's given up on church. He's given up on his instrument. His heart is full of anger and grief. And one day, in a fit of anger, he picks up his instrument as if to break it. But something seems just to hold him back. And he sits and he begins to play, slowly at first, trying to sum up up some kind of worship. But his heart is heavy with grief. He plays. Moments become minutes and minutes stretch out. After 20 minutes, there's no change. He still has his heaviness in his heart. He plays on for an hour and still no change. But he keeps going, trying to rouse up within him some kind of worship. One hour stretches into two and at that point, He feels like just giving up 
and walking away from worship forever. But just something within him keeps him going. He worships more, and as he approaches three hours, something breaks in the spirit. It felt like the presence of God had entered the room. And as he worshipped, tears flowed down his cheeks. His grief was poured out before the Lord. And a sense of healing and peace came over him. There was a long journey back from that place. But it had begun when he began to worship. And he worshipped until something happened. And in times of trouble, sacrifice is sometimes called for. A sacrifice that's offered willingly as an act of faith. A sacrifice of praise. Because in worship, that's when we draw near to God and he draws near to us and we become one with him. Psalm 50 verse 15 says this, Then call on me when you are in trouble and I will rescue you and you will give me glory. And that glory is the worship that we offer to God. Some troubles and obstacles are a test of our faith. When we were looking for a new home for the church, we teamed up with a local developer who owned a plot of land down by Tesco's near the roundabout. We joined with him in a planning application to develop the site. The planning application failed and things fell apart with the developer. Whilst out walking with another leader, I was asked how I felt about the project. My reply was that I thought I was called to lead the church to a new home. We walked on and I reflected a bit more and said, well, perhaps if that doesn't happen, then maybe my role was to prepare the church for that move, even if I don't see it through. And in that moment, I released back to God the dream that he placed in my heart and in the heart of other people in the church. Amazingly, a few days later, the developer invites us to look at an empty factory, which is now our home. Sometimes we have to release back to God the very thing that he's calling us to do in order that it becomes all of him and nothing of us. When troubles come, don't be overwhelmed by them. Rejoice. Look to God. Bring a sacrifice of praise and you'll bring glory to God. Now, people around you may not understand, but don't let that stop you. God sees into your heart and he will draw near to you. And remember this, no matter how big your problem is, your God, our God, is bigger. Show your problem to your God, to our God, and your problem will be, begin to shrink before a God who can do more than we can ask or think. So Paul continues on. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Now circumcision is no longer a problem in the modern church, I'm happy to say. I expect any man watching will say an amen to that. 
Our relationship with God is based on faith, not works. Paul writes in Ephesians, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and not works giving no human being the opportunity to boast that they were saved by their own efforts. Now, of course, performance Christianity can still be a problem if we view God as somebody we must appease. If we think that in some way we have to earn God's love, then living the Christian life will be a struggle and it will be difficult and it will be exhausting. This can be especially true if we felt as a child that we could never be good enough for one or both of our parents. Endlessly trying to please them can turn into trying to please people. We may be then encounter God by faith and we receive that forgiveness, that sense of freedom, but it's easy to slip back into those whole habits of trying to please a father. And it's so exhausting. Now, I know activists are particularly prone to this. We always think there's something we should be doing, could be doing for God. And introverts, the same. They look inwards and see how unworthy they are and what it is that they should be doing to please God. But God loves us for who we are, not what we do. His love is unconditional. There's no way that we can earn it. Our significance, our acceptance, our self-worth become a reality, a true reality, when we enter into a relationship with God. And everybody in this world is looking for that. They want to be significant. They want to be accepted. They want to be valued. And God says to you today, yes, you are significant to me. Yes, you are accepted by me. Yes, I value you. You are valuable to me. And God says, I paid an incredibly high price for you so that you could enter back into a relationship with me. My son Jesus went to the cross and paid a price for you. Our debt was paid and the way has been opened for us to come into this intimate, personal relationship with God. And our relationship with God from start to finish is based solely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is the heart of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through our faith in Jesus, we are made alive spiritually, and as we receive the Holy Spirit, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, one last little warning about this section. There's a little bit of a Pharisee in all of us. We desire to add our little bit to the gospel. I love it that we have systematic theology and very clever people who can dissect the word and boil it all down into minutia. But for most of us, I would say KISS. K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. Because if we're not careful, people can add to the gospel and make it more complicated than it really is. John writes in his gospel, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And Paul goes on later in life to write to Timothy and says this, 
remind everybody about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. And if you look back over church history and you see the denominations that now exist, the church split over the divisions over this doctrine or that doctrine. There's been lots of controversies and differences of opinion and they can be divisive and usually they're of little and no value. We should avoid them and seek to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, that the church would unite around Jesus and the simplicity of the gospel, how much more we could do to bring God's kingdom to earth, to change our community and to change the lives of those we meet. Paul goes on to write to expand on his previous qualities and qualifications, all of which he now rejects. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed if others have reason to have full confidence in their own effort, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead, and I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul sets out his revelation that came from meeting with Jesus Christ. This is a kind of before and after story. Before he knew Jesus, his pride, his identity was in his Jewishness. Being a Jew of Jews, he was confident that he was acceptable to God. His credentials were impeccable. He has no rival. He stands head and shoulders above other mere mortals. And of course, this explains why he was so violently opposed to the church. It was a threat to everything that he held dear. It was a threat to everything he built his life upon. Now, there are analogies that we could apply, perhaps. Paul looks at his life as a balance sheet. And he's listed all these things that are to his credit. But then he moves them all into the debit side. Or we can say he's taking stock, taking inventory of his achievements. And suddenly he realises it's all meaningless, a chasing after wind, worthless and only fit to be disposed of as garbage. But at the heart of this is identity. Now whilst I was preparing for this message, I'd kind of written this section of the sermon in my head, and then I got a call from my son Tom. You want to know why Jewish people were so focused on their Jewishness. They seemed different to other people from other religions who did not put race as an integral part of their religion. 
I said to him, well, it's like this. Being a Jew is to be special. You're God's chosen people. It's all wrapped up in their identity. And of course, as we discussed that, it became a little bit clearer to me. This is where Paul is at, isn't it? It's his identity that's being totally and utterly challenged by Jesus Christ. And Paul realises that being a Jew is not enough. He comes to understand that salvation comes by faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done. And he rejects his whole identity because now he sees it as an hindrance to him. He by faith swaps out his old identity for a new identity based on faith in Jesus, based on knowing Jesus. His desire is to be one with Christ. For me to live is Christ, he has said boldly in chapter 1. In another letter he writes, Christ in me, the hope of glory. For Paul, life was all about Jesus. And if we look at his example, the example of a mature Christian is somebody who is Christ-centred and lives a Christ-centred life. Now, Paul didn't spend the three years that the disciples had with Jesus. He wasn't around for all that teaching. But in some supernatural way, in his relationship with Jesus, there is an unfolding of revelation that comes to him. In some way, Jesus takes him through the whole of the Last Supper, all that Jesus did in breaking the bread and blessing the cup. Because we read in 1 Corinthians 11:23, For I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. We know he wasn't at the Last Supper. So Jesus, in some supernatural way, revealed this to him. And of course, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit that led him deeper and deeper into the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way had been made open now for a relationship with God, an intimate relationship, a way in which we could become one with God. Paul knows from his Jewish history that we're separated from the holiness of God. And in the temple that was depicted by a curtain. And when Jesus died upon the cross, the Bible tells us that the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And the way was made open for us to go into the Holy of Holies, to come into the very presence of God without fear of death. And Jesus, as he died upon the cross, put an end to the priesthood and the sacrificial system. He died once and for all for the sins of the world. And as Paul explored and understood more about this oneness, as the Holy Spirit revealed more to him, we might want to find out for ourselves what that looks like. And I would suggest, that if you want to get a better understanding of this, you read John's Gospel, chapters 14 through 17, to get a better understanding. We're going to look at a two, couple of those sections now. John 14, 23. Jesus replied, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. So what does this, look, this oneness look like? Well, let's have a look at these uh, things I brought along today. 
Now, this represents the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, they would all be the same size because they are equally God. And they operate, though, in this amazing way of love. They intertwine with each other. They, they interact with each other. They are one with each other. There is a oneness about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in everything, they act as one. And what the Bible teaches us is that as this oneness exists in the Trinity, that we are invited to become part of that Trinity, to become one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God calls on us to, to come and be part of this relationship based on love. That is indeed a tremendous thought. But if we put that to one side for a moment, and if you imagine that this is us, and that's not a good imagination really, because we're not bigger than God. But what John is saying to us through what Jesus is teaching is that the Father comes and makes his home in us. Jesus comes and makes his home in us. And the Holy Spirit, who is poured out, comes and fills us. And so we're filled with all the Godhead. And it's this that Paul is longing for, he's desperate for, he wants us to know and to strive for. Being found in Christ and Christ in me, he's what he wants, it's what he longs for. But he knows that it's a journey and he's not there yet. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. But I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it. But I focus on the one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress that we've already made. Perfection is to be totally identified with Christ, to be totally immersed in the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, to fully experience the indwelling of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the weakness of our bodies keeps us from really fully experiencing this reality. And Paul admits as much. He's not there yet, but he presses on to try and possess that perfect knowledge and experience of Jesus. Jesus possessed Paul when he put his faith in him. And each of us, when we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus came and possessed us. We are indeed his possession, his precious children. He won at the cross. And as you look, he's pressing on. But one of the things we should notice is he doesn't let the past hold him back or distract him. He abandons all regrets and looks forward. Our past failures can trap us in the past. We can be imprisoned and paralysed by past mistakes. Paul says, let it go. The past is unchangeable, but today is a new opportunity to grow closer to Jesus. Our past is totally forgiven. And our future failures are also forgiven. That's what unconditional love and forgiveness looks like. Paul says, look forward, focus on Jesus today, 
Focus on following him and obeying the Holy Spirit. Press on with the race of your life. Run your race. Keep to your lane. You cannot run another's race. Only the race set out for you by Jesus Christ. Run with your eyes on the prize. Run for your eternal reward. Run though you may experience suffering, persecution, setbacks and failure. Keep running towards the Father as he is running towards you, ready to welcome you into the future he has prepared for you. I look back on my Christian life and I can mark times when God revealed himself to me or used me in some way. And to change the analogy from a race to climbing a mountain, it's like when you go up a mountain as a mountaineer, you hammer in pins into the mountain and they are a safety measure so that should you slip, they will catch you and stop you from falling. And these pins, they remind us of past graces that we've received, past blessings. They hold you because they remind you of God's faithfulness, that he will never let you go. They also strengthen us because they remind us that we've seen miracles and we've seen answers to prayer. So Paul says, don't don't slip back. Hold on to that progress. Keep going on until you reach the end. And in the last section of this chapter, Paul says this, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I've told you often before, and I'll say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction, their God is their appetite, they brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where Jesus Christ lives. We are eagerly awaiting for him to return as saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies, like his very own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So Paul writes to him and says, follow my example. Do as I do. Live as I live. Look at my life and let it be your pattern. And Paul is confident in this. He's living with the indwelling spirit. He is radiant in the spirit. And his calling as an apostle are his credentials to issue these instructions, not only to the Philippians, but to us today. But Paul is no longer here with us. And so we need to look for others, mentors spiritual guides and leaders who are further down the journey of faith than we are. We need to seek through the Holy Spirit a guide to help us grow as Christians. We need to look for someone we can trust, someone who will pour time, love, encouragement into our lives, someone who will speak to us the truth in love, who will challenge our choices, will challenge our thinking and our actions, but will always be without judgment and without condemnation. Such mentors are valuable. And if you've got one, then hold on to that person. If you haven't got one, then seek one. And there's another concept that Paul talks about in other letters. It's the role of mothers and fathers, spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. Men need a good spirit-filled father to support them to encourage them and to build them up, as do spiritual women 
too, of course. Being a Christian man, a godly man takes courage and the support of other men. And being a Christian woman is no easier in this day of image and perfection and all the pressures there are on both male and female today. And godly women need wisdom and the support of other women. And I believe that Riverside Church can be and is a place where people can be mentored and can be fathered and mothered to flourish and to grow to maturity as Christians. Finally, run the race with expectation that Jesus will return and when he does, he will complete the restoration work of the kingdom. He will restore all things. First and foremost, he will transform our weak mortal bodies into the glorious body like his own, fit for eternity. No more aches and pains, no more broken hips or cancers, no feebleness, no more sorrow, no more death. We can look forward to that day when we know Jesus perfectly. Our faith will be perfected and our holiness will be complete. We will be part of a new creation where heaven and earth become one. All things will be restored to purity and goodness, powered by God in love. Creation will be as it was always meant to be, and we will worship and serve and love the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Father in me, the Son in me, the Holy Spirit in me, and in you. So this day, like Paul, we press on to be possessed by Jesus. We press on for that perfect knowledge of knowing Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.